0: A podcast one production. Sexy clapping. (laughs)
1: little taste of South America seeing as I can't actually be there. But I do have a Bloody Maria, which is just a Bloody Mary made with tequila because I don't have vodka.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And with that... Ready, go!
1: Hello, Just the Gistners, and welcome to another episode of Just the Gist, a weekly-ish podcast where Rosie Waterland and I, Jacob Stanley, give you just the gist of what you need to know about a topic of our choosing that we find interesting, so that you can then bluff your way through a dinner party with enough information to sound intelligent. Rosie. (laughs) That
0: sort of describes how I get through life.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's certainly how we got through our degrees. Ah. We just got the bare minimum information that we needed. That's true. And then we bluffed it from there.
0: And it's your turn again this week, Jakey. So you're telling me what the topic is. So what is it?
1: Well, this is a story that I've told you before, but um, you and I were both legless. Um, (laughs) So I'm hoping that you don't remember too many of the details. This is the story of the Great Emu War of
0: 1932. Ooh! No, I don't remember anything because, as you say, I was legless when you told me this. It
1: was a couple of years ago. We were intoxicated. You were visiting in Melbourne and um, (laughs) I have actually found out Uh, far more interesting facts in researching for this week. So hopefully it's going to be fun. Yes. Um, And there have been lots and lots of articles written about this and lots of quirky videos made about it. I'm sure there are lots of podcast episodes as well. Um, But somehow I did not know about it until I was about 32 years old Mm. and one of my best friends from high school posted something on Facebook saying every now and then I can't help but laughing to myself like a crazy person because I remember that back in the 30s, Australia went to war officially with In news, and I was very confused about the fact that she knew this because we had been in almost all of the same classes together all throughout high school and part of primary school. And if I didn't know about it, how on earth did she? Well, obviously, she was spending more time on the internet than I was.
0: I only know. Of it because you once got really, really drunk and tried to explain it to me. So that, and that was two years ago. So, other than that, <laughs> I would have had no idea that it happened. And because you were really drunk and I was really drunk, it was kind of like an episode of Drunk History in which you know, I'm not sure I retained anything. And even if I had, it probably would have all been ridiculously inaccurate. So
1: (laughs) (laughs) today may be much more of the same because, as I mentioned, (laughs) I am on round two of the Bloody Marias. All right, so this wasn't technically a war because I don't think that the emus realised they were at war Mm. with um, the Australian military, but it was an official military operation it lasted just over a month, and just like all wars, it was very expensive and a big, big waste of time. And it definitely was a war between <laughs> humans and emus, as opposed to. Have you ever heard of the pig war in No eighteen hundreds?
0: Was that here? Was that in Australia too?
1: No, that one was in North America, in Canada, um, and that was started because an American farmer killed a. British pig, or vice versa, and then that sparked a war up there. Between um, that's a whole nother episode for another time.
0: <laughs> between yeah. the pigs and the people?
1: No, no. That was between.
0: Or between people who were annoyed that he'd killed that kind of pig.
1: Yeah. The right. Brits and the Americans went to war with each other because one of them had killed the other's pig. But
0: in the easy anyway. war, it is a war between the the emus and the people.
1: Yes, man versus bird. Yes. Described so eloquently oh in a newspaper at the time as um, man versus an enemy as old as Western Australia itself, a tough and unpredictable adversary.
0: Um, so we're in
1: Australia in 1932 in yes. the district of Campion, which is in WA, and that's about three hours' drive east from Perth. This so was in the middle of quite established- left nowhere. Correct. Mm. They set up this town as part of the soldier settlement scheme. So when all the soldiers came back from World War One, they were given land and told to establish a farm and start a new life there. And that's that's how they created what they called the Wheat Belt of WA. It's good, but it's not great because they gave them a little bit of money, a little bit of grain um, and helped them with housing, but Mm. they didn't actually do a lot to set them up for long-term success and sustainability. So for a lot of them, they actually didn't have enough money to even build fences.
0: Sounds like more than what we do now, though. I'm
1: sure it is, but ultimately it did leave to for the problems that they yeah. didn't give them enough support and in many ways you could ask that it was a little bit manipulative because they were sort of being put to work to grow wheat that the rest of the country needed.
0: Oh, so it wasn't like here's a whole setup thanks for going to war it was like here's a whole setup by the way we need you to grow some stuff that we need. Correct. Um, um and we so keep
1: in mind that this Yeah, it was all happening in the depression as well. Um, Um, So at that time, the cost of wheat really plummeted and the government said, don't worry, keep growing the wheat, we'll subsidise the prices for you. mm. And then they went, just kidding, can't afford to do that. Um, So they were kind of getting screwed not only financially but also environmentally because growing wheat in Western Australian desert is incredibly difficult. Uh, So for a few years their crops failed. Yeah. In 1932, the farmers finally had a decent yield from their crops Mm. and they were kind of threatening to hold it hostage from the government. Good. Because the government had promised them these subsidies and then they backed out of that promise and they said, look, if you're not going to give us the price that we'd agreed to, we're just going to hang on to all of the wheat.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, They were in this sort of standoff but they hadn't yet harvested any of the wheat. So the wheat was still growing. It looked like it was going to be a decent yield. Mm. And then the farmers of the Campion region heard mm. that there were more than 20,000 emus migrating inland from the coast for their annual breeding season.
0: <laughs> so did you say 20,000? 20,
1: Correct. 20,000 of these big,
0: Where tall, had they been? fluffy been?
1: animals. So they go out and spend the summer near the coast where it's a little bit, sorry, the winter. Yeah. At the coast. And then when they're coming back for their breeding season, they need to go back further inland where it's a little bit drier and scrubbier and so they can is this, build their nests.
0: Is this one of those things where Australia is so vast in ways that we don't quite understand even today, but particularly mm-hmm. back in the thirties before there was even, you know, a lot of development that there could literally be a group of 20,000 emus that just no one would really come across often. That's how much just Mm -hmm. vast space there is in this country. Correct. That's nuts. Um,
1: And they spend a lot of their time as solitary animals, so they go out scavenging on their own most of the time, but when they're migrating, they migrate in herds. How
0: much space do you reckon that is? Like five football fields? Like I reckon it'd, it'd be a lot.
1: After this, we'll take the time to do the maths and work it out. But, yes, it would be enormous. Like, yes.
0: Okay, so Dino just did the maths and apparently 20,000 emus would take up the space of 26 kilometres of space. Square kilometres. I think so. Well, yeah. So, Mm -hmm. like, that's, Mm -hmm. like, more than a couple of football fields. (laughs) <laughs> that's like a couple of suburbs. Quite a bit more, that's I like think. From, no, that's like from Circular Quay to like Cronulla if you're in Sydney. I don't know if other places in Australia. Work it out for yourselves. From where you are to 26 kilometres away. <laughs> and they thought they were going to get in with two trucks and two guns. <laughs> I just can't. Oh. Tell you what, that's what men and their incompetence get when they come up against some powerful ladies who are getting orgasms all the time and abandoning their kids all over town. Oh, All right.
1: So a sea of emus working their way towards this crop of wheat that you've taken (gasps) years to grow. This is finally the moment when you could actually start to make a decent living off the hard work that you've put in. And these emus, you know that they're going to come and wreck it because like I said, most of the farmers didn't have enough money to build fences. If they did build fences, they were kind of crappy. Um, And emus can jump more than two meters anyway.
0: And also there's 20,000 of them. They're they're just going to trample your flimsy fence.
1: Yeah, which then allows all the rabbits and all the other animals to get in as <gasps> well. Um, so, and oh, also, they're kind of terrifying, let's face it. Mm, These no, they used are. to be dinosaurs. Their middle claw, just like the velociraptors in Jurassic Park, they mm. can actually eviscerate an enemy, and there's video footage of them doing that to dingoes when they're attacking them.
0: And they run really fast. Like, one of the foster homes I lived in, they had this farm and they had a bunch of emus on the farm that they just let wander around the farm. And sometimes an emu would just lock eyes with you and start sprinting towards you. And it is like a fluffy velociraptor, like, coming at mm-hmm. your face. They're huge and they run fast and they make a weird noise. They're terrifying. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, P.S. Have I ever told you the story of the time I was attacked by a rooster when I was (laughs) a (laughs) (laughs) one-year-old?
0: Why? What happened?
1: So, firstly, I can't believe how um, irresponsible they were to let emus just run wild with you when you were a child. But my parents let the roosters run wild with me when I was a child. So I, for the first two years of my life, (laughs) lived up near Coffs Harbour. And I was wandering around in my nappy in the front yard of... The farm that we had and all of a sudden my parents watched this rooster just lock eyes with me <laughs> and just sprint towards me. It jumped and just threw both of its legs onto my chest, knocked me onto my back. My parents were absolutely terrified that it was going to scratch and peck the crap out of me and make me a blind person for the rest of my life. But luckily I... Got out of it with only, I think, a few scratches on my chest. Anyway, my dad had a rifle at the time.
0: That rooster challenged you to a (laughs) cockfight.
1: He saw me as a threat. He challenged
0: you to a Uh cockfight.
1: And I guess he kind of won the fight, but then, um, yeah, my dad just shot him and then I believe that they ate him. Um, Your dad shot it? Yeah, my dad had a rifle. He was a badass.
0: Did it have a name? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I'll find out and get back to you.
0: <laughs> it's kind of a grim story, Jacob.
1: <laughs> it was a very, very um, bad-natured cock. Anyway. So.
0: <laughs> Come across a few of them in my time. Hoyo. <laughs> <laughs> All right, keep going, keep going.
1: <laughs> All right. So obviously the most luxurious place that these emus could spend their breeding season would be in these comfy wheat crops with all of the food that they needed. Um, and mm. so they started getting into the farmland and they started eating as much wheat as they could and they're stomping all over the crops and they're pooping everywhere. They're destroying fences, letting all these rabbits in and people's kind of, entire it harvest sounds like was a being wiped out.
0: like a music festival, you know what yeah. I mean? Just like a bunch of people like Glastonbury or like Coachella. It's Emu Coachella. <laughs> You're like, ah. get lost. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So obnoxious And the right person for the farmers to have asked for help from at this point would have been the Minister for Agriculture But because they were all ex-soldiers, they had a lot more trust and faith in the military than they did Mm. in bureaucrats and politicians And
0: the bureaucrats and politicians have screwed them over at this point So why would you trust them?
1: That's right um, they also knew from first-hand experience how effective machine guns could be when it came to taking out an enemy front line. And so mm, they sent yes. a, a couple of the 5,000 farmers all the way over to Canberra so that they could meet with the Minister for Defence, Sir George Pierce. Mm. Um, and they asked him to very literally bring out the big guns to help wipe out these emus, and so. Can so is, I ask
0: it? Did did the minister for agriculture step in at this point and say, "Hello, excuse me, this is not a foreign enemy. This isn't a war that requires the army. These are emus." Did anyone step in and go, "Guys, guys, guys, not machine guns, not soldiers"?
1: At this point, they genuinely thought, yep, this is going to be an easy, quick fix. We're just going to give you two of our top of the line Lewis machine guns. We'll give you 10,000 bullets, which is very optimistic to think that you're going to be able to wipe out 20,000 emus with 10,000, <laughs> with
0: 10,000 <laughs> pieces of ammo. <laughs> Only two machine guns.
1: Two machine guns, two experienced gunners, um, but they also gave them the expert leadership of one major GPW, Meredith of the 7th Heavy Battery of the Royal Australian Artillery.
0: So they are literally treating this like a battle in a war.
1: Yeah, correct. They've
0: given them weapons, they've given them trained soldiers to use the weapons, and they've given them like an army general to come and control the whole thing.
1: Mm -hmm. And they really thought that the whole matter was going to be over in the space of just a few hours And Major Meredith didn't think that this was a legitimate deployment Um, Like he had to go and actually meet with Sir Piers to get clarification about um, Are you seriously asking me to do this? I've just got back from the greatest war (laughs) of our generation And now you're sending me off to kill some birds. Okie dokie.
0: So no one took it seriously, but let me guess, the birds fight back.
1: (laughs) I don't want to spoil it, um, but the birds really do come out on top in this.
0: Yes!
1: (laughs) Major Meredith, by the way, is my new favorite drag name. And I think if I ever do develop (laughs) a drag persona, I'm going to call myself Major Meredith. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage Major Merida Um, And so then this is the first time in history that I'm aware of Where a country declared war on an animal that's literally on their own coat of arms (laughs) The Minister for Defence, Sir Pierce, was able to justify this to Parliament and to the public By explaining that the soldiers would really benefit from this target practice While they were in between wars Um, And it also seemed to be a really good way to demonstrate the government's willingness to support Western Australia at a tough time um, because they needed to do everything that they could to help prevent WA from seceding from the rest of Australia. So, I didn't know that there was this movement going on in the late 20s and early 30s where Western Australia wanted to break away from Australia and become its own independent nation. Mm. And the year after the Great New War, they actually did have a referendum. Did you know this? No. No, they did have a referendum where the popular vote was, yes, we Western Australians want to break away from the rest of the federation and become yeah. our own independent, self-governed nation. That was the yeah. popular vote. Um, but then when it was taken to British Parliament, British Parliament just dismissed it and said, no, it's not a legitimate referendum.
0: All right. Like, and shut so up, you children made- down there. Yeah. Just- <laughs> Don't be annoying. <laughs> Go back to your <laughs> emu stuff. Okay.
1: Yes. So, all right, uh, October. We're in sort of mid-spring, and Major Meredith and his soldiers arrived in Campion, and they had their first battle all planned and all ready. But just as they were about to strike, it started raining, and so they had to <laughs> they had to postpone the first battle um, because it was rained out. So they had to spend a few days just taking shelter. And then on the 2nd of November, conditions were good enough that they could finally actually get out there and start taking out some emus. A group of 50 emus had been spotted at a watering hole just outside Campion. So overnight Mm -hmm. the army went out and they set up their guns under the cover of night and they waited until sunrise. And then as soon as they felt (laughs) like they could get a clear shot on the birds... They opened fire, but, of course, as soon as the birds heard the very first gun- gunshot, they just got up and scattered. Um, yeah. And they just kept trying to spray bullets everywhere in the hope that they would take out one of the birds, um, but they did not. No, not even one. There was zero not casualties in that first attack.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: but then they got to tracking and they later in the day. They underestimated
0: the birds. Yeah.
1: <laughs> They really, really did, and this is never just underestimate the, the birds. Keep in mind, this goes on for a month. Um, later in the day, they went out and they found another small flock, and they tried a slightly different tactic, and they were able to kill and I say this in inverted commas, perhaps a dozen of the birds. So, they didn't present the bodies. (laughs) So, there was no proof of the death count. Um, But perhaps a dozen or so of them. Um, And by the way, there is fantastic video footage of this day because this was a little bit of a PR stunt to show how the Australian federal government was supporting Western Australia. Um, They sent out a camera crew to capture the action here. So, back in the day, this is pre-TV. People got their news at cinemas and... The government really wanted everyone in Australia and over in Britain um, to see how well the WA farmers were being supported because they were national heroes as ex-soldiers. So they hired British movie tone to come and film a newsreel to document the progress that they were making. Um, And it is just (laughs) so beautiful to watch this black and white footage. And I'm going to try to do the voice now (laughs) because it is that. (laughs) pan uh australian and um english accent that they would do on the news back there and the narrator's saying things like things are desperate it's a war to the finish this time (laughs) our lads have to do some real stalking to get close to this enemy the enemy's watching events through their periscopes and they have (laughs) (laughs)
0: that's so good (laughs) that's so good (gasps)
1: And then it ends with, there'll be no more damage done here for many a day. Um, but that is 100% <laughs> inaccurate because the There'll emus be no just more damage him- done here
0: for many a day. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: yes, fake news that was. Two days later, 4th of November, Major Meredith received intelligence that there were up to 1,000 emus that were heading towards <laughs> a dam nearby. <laughs> He had scouts all (laughs) over the place Oh
0: my god, this is so good So we
1: started planning another ambush um, And the soldiers sat quietly And they waited until the birds were close enough For the bullets to be able to reach them And then they just started spraying at them again But within just a few seconds, the gun jammed And by that point, of course, (laughs) the birds had just completely scattered Through pure luck some of the hundreds of bullets that they were able to fire took out 12 birds. So that was one of the most successful battle days that they had had in mm-hmm. the entire war. Um, but then no emus were seen by anyone in the army for the rest of the day. <laughs> Two days later, <laughs> Major Meredith on the 6th of November received word that there were more birds even further south and that these birds were a lot more placid and a lot easier to shoot. Um But by this point, the troops' morale was really starting to drop because they didn't feel great about the fact that they were being outsmarted (laughs) by a group of animals that looked like they'd been designed by Jim Henson and the Muppet Factory. And (laughs) (laughs) the soldiers had started talking to the media and giving classic quotes like, emus soon began to... Sorry, I should do this in the voice. The emus soon began to improve their understanding of the science of warfare. Um, And the emus had.
0: (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm losing it. I'm sorry. Their understanding of the science of warfare. (laughs) Okay, keep going, keep going. (laughs) Um,
1: And by all accounts from the farmers and the soldiers, the emus had figured out really quickly exactly how far away they needed to stay from humans to be able to remain out of range of the guns. (gasps) Um, They're
0: geniuses. It's like that moment in Jurassic Park when they figure out how to open the door handle.
1: Correct. Um, Honestly, these things are the descendants of velociraptors and probably even smarter. Um, there were also reports that they'd started forming their own little battalions. So each of the little groups of emus that had formed seemed to have their own leader. And I'll do another quote and I'll do the voice again. This one's yes, all the Each pack seemed to have its own leader, a big black plume bird, which stands fully six feet high and keeps watch while his mates carry out their work of destruction and warns them of our approach. At the first <laughs> suspicious sign, he gives the signal and dozens of heads stretch out at the crop. A few birds will take fright, starting a headlong stampede for the scrub, a leader always remaining until his followers have reached safety.
0: (gasps) They are geniuses. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so Major Meredith had to come up with a strategy that was going to outsmart these genius birds, and so he came up with a plan to make... The machine guns mobile, considering that it was really, really difficult on foot to get close enough to be able to shoot the birds. So they right. attached one of the Lewis machine guns onto the roof of the truck so that they could chase the emus down and shoot them on the run. But what they didn't take into account is the theme... That you gotta remember about emus, they can run over fifty kilometers an hour and they can very yeah. easily handle uneven ground. They're also very, very agile and they can dodge, duck, and weave. Whereas and also truck, you, which
0: you couldn't even shoot them when you and they were standing still. Yeah. <laughs> like, why do you think you're <laughs> gonna be, why do you think this is gonna help? all right boys let's ride on the truck let's get it moving
1: yes let's all get on board this truck and weigh it down with people and heavy weaponry and ammunition so they were struggling to keep up
0: ask at this point how long has it been now
1: only the matter of a few days
0: right and so there's twenty thousand emus and so far they've shot what less than 20 around 20
1: correct and that's if we even <laughs> believe their reports, which were unverified.
0: And they thought it was going to be done in two hours. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, keep
1: so the truck can't even keep up with the birds and even if it could keep up with the birds it would only be able to keep up with one at a time because they've figured out how to scatter Um, and then you'd have to be a really really good aim but it turns out that it's almost impossible to hang on for dear life when you're on the back (laughs) of a truck going over this bumpy terrain let alone fire a machine gun with any sort of accuracy at an animal (laughs) that's running around in front of you faster than you in a zigzag pattern. So
0: (laughs) (laughs) that was the only day
1: that they tried out that plan and they gave up on it pretty quickly. Um, On that day, though... There was one casualty because one of the farmers in the convoy decided that he was going to take the initiative to crash his own truck into one of the slower emus that had broken away from the pack. But that emu came out on top because the emu crashed through the truck's windshield as soon as it made impact with the truck. Its neck got tangled in the steering wheel and the driver lost control of the vehicle, (laughs) ran off the road and completely destroyed one of the few precious fences that they (laughs) had there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He literally literally thought... I'll just crash my truck into it. Yes. And then the emu was like, lol, no, I'm going to steer this truck where it can cause the <laughs> most destruction. <laughs> Sucker.
1: <laughs> yeah. So um, let the history book show that the 6th of November 1932 definitely went to the emus, not to mankind. <laughs> What men. is
0: just what I can't stop laughing because I just think okay, there's 20,000 emus. There's soldiers from the army and it literally comes down to like, can you imagine these frustrated men just going, well, I'm just gonna catch that one <laughs> like, yep. just going after a single <laughs> emu and still not being able to get it? <laughs> uh,
1: and it was the slowest oldest emu that he managed to hit with his car but then he managed to not only destroy his truck but he destroyed a fence as well so he just made the problem worse for everybody oh all right so now a couple of days later 8th of November, there'd been lots of bad Press coverage, believe it or not, about what a Farce this had all become, and Mm -hmm. The war had to be discussed in the House Of Representatives, and the (laughs) Minister for Defence had to get up and Explain himself, which he tried To do and failed, so he decided he Was going to withdraw the troops Um, one ornithologist Commented in the press At this time about the whole matter Um, the voice again The EMU command had evidently ordered guerrilla tactics and its unwieldy army soon split up into innumerable small units that made use of the military equipment uneconomic. So that was the explanation (laughs) to the public as to why they could no longer continue with this war. Um, Major Meredith tried really hard to defend himself and his men and maintain some of their pride and dignity by explaining just how tough the EMUs were. And so he said... The emu is an amazingly hard bird to kill outright. Many carry mortal wounds up to a distance of half a mile. If we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity that these birds have, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns with the invulnerability of (laughs) tanks. They are like Zulus, who even dum-dum bullets could not stop.
0: (laughs) So is he literally saying... I'm not kidding, we can't kill them because it's possible the emus could be the most powerful army in the world. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: he was telling the world they are impervious to bullets, they are very, very fast learners who figure out how to form Little formations and little militia groups And good luck to the rest of you if you want to try to take them on But he sort of tried to wash his hands of the whole matter at that point Yeah, I will give him a little bit of credit though Because another emu was hit by a civilian truck on the road And when they checked out the body It did actually have five bullets in its Main torso Jesus. area. But it was still up and walking around. Like these birds really and truly are made of tough stuff. Um yeah. and another soldier told the media, Look, there's really only one way that you can kill an emu. You either shoot it through the back of the head when his mouth is closed or through the front of his mouth when his mouth is open. That's how hard it is. So even it's if like it was killing just a, a zombie. Of- yes.
0: You gotta get the yeah. brain.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. That seems to be the only way that you can slow it down Because these things are tough Anyway, so the first round of the war was called off But then within just a few days, on the 12th of November They declared war again because the farmers were saying Look, we really do still need help And so the Minister for Defence, Sir Pierce, Once again approved redeploying these soldiers Including Major Meredith to give it one last red hot go so out they went with a new strategy. This time they were going to take a slow and steady approach and act more mm-hmm. as like a stealthy sniper-style <laughs> unit. That's um, definitely going to had- work. That's definitely yeah. going to work. Some of the days were a little more successful than others. They claim that on average they'd been taking out roughly a hundred of the enemy every week, um, which seems... Okay, you know, they're getting into the triple digits, but then when Major Meredith had to report back that he'd used up more than 10,000 rounds of ammo to kill less than (laughs) a 1,000 emus. (laughs) And and during the Great Depression, it was costing more than 10 rounds per bird that they were actually taking out. The government decided that they were just not willing to give them any more money. Were
0: there any other suggestions at this point? Like did the Minister for Agriculture or any like bird specialist step forward and say, this is not going to work? here's what you need to do to get rid of these emus. Did anyone have any other suggestion or was the whole country just like, Australia is collectively at a loss, like no one (laughs) else knew what to do?
1: (laughs) They ended up coming up with a different plan. I don't know how many others were being put on the table, but what ended up being effective once all of the troops had been recalled was – creating a bounty scheme so this was very sort of grassroots they told the population of Australia you can earn four pence for every emu beak that you bring in and six Ah. pence for every egg that you bring in Um, and they reckon that they probably were able to cull more than 300,000 emus over the course of a few years um, by giving people a financial incentive to go out and hunt them one by one
0: and I bet um, the emus sit around today talking about the great emu massacre of 1932.
1: <laughs> we lost nearly a thousand of our men in 1932.
0: No, but then they men. lost 350,000.
1: Yeah, because that was the government
0: the... turned all the people on them. Mm-hmm. That's an emu genocide.
1: They do still have a pretty strong population.
0: Okay, apparently.
1: Mm. Anyway, then the question was raised by someone, I don't know if they were just being a smartass, but someone in Parliament asked, should the soldiers who were involved in this war that we launched get medals for their service? And, of course, that was just met with a whole lot of laughter. <laughs> like, can they,
0: can they march on Anzac Day if they were in <laughs> 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 the, the emu war? <laughs> <gasps>
1: Uh, um, and then it's on the record that another minister said Look, it really should be the emus who got the medal Because they won every single battle that we ah, started with.
0: wrecked Wrecked Brutal
1: uh, um, True though And then from that point on The emus just kept coming back every year And they kept doing just as much damage year on year um, And even though the military had failed so badly At their first attempt The farmers kept asking them for help Um, they went to Canberra again to lobby in 1934 saying, please give us soldiers, give us artillery, and the government refused because they'd learnt their lesson. In 1943, they went to them with a proposal, look, what if this time the Air Force comes along and they just drop bombs onto the (laughs) flocks of emus (laughs) from some low-flying aircraft? Um, And then in 1953, when they went to the government and asked for help, they came up with a brand-new plan which turned out to be effective, which was putting up a nice big fence. Um, and so ah. that's where the okay, hostility is finally I'm sorry, Can ended. you
0: just hold on, hold on. So this whole time the solution was...
1: <laughs> a fence.
0: Building a fence. <laughs> and no one had thought of that. So we're talking 1933 to 53. In 20 years they got to the point where they were talking about getting the Air Force to drop bombs... And then someone was like, wait a sec, let's build a fence.
1: (laughs) Look, it's kind of Trump era thinking, build a wall, but it turns out in some instances it can actually work and this was one of them.
0: Well, they are, at the end of the day, just animals. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly very smart ones, but still, Mm -hmm. big strong wall. If they can't knock it down, then what are they going to do?
1: Some lessons have to be learned the hard way though. So... That was The Great Emu War of 1932. (laughs) And just before I wrap it up, I want to end it with one of my favourite facts that I think you'll really enjoy about emus. Um, And keeping in mind that we haven't brought up the topic of gender dynamics for a while, I thought this one (gasps) might be something to help raise that conversation once again. So the female emus really are the dominant gender in this particular Oh, no species. wonder
0: they're so smart and successful
1: mm-hmm. um, And they really, really dominate the males during breeding So I thought it was interesting that they lay their eggs in a nest That the male is responsible for making for them They yes. lay the eggs Then the female leaves, never to return She goes off to <laughs> mate with another male While the father <laughs>
0: Sounds like my mother <laughs>
1: Oh, well done.
0: Anyway, keep going.
1: So the male is left there to incubate the eggs. Childhood (laughs)
0: trauma.
1: We're able to laugh about it now. Um, We laugh. Yeah, he... He has to sit on the eggs and incubate them for many, many, many months, in which time he doesn't leave to eat or drink or anything. It's. Like- Two to three months he has to incubate them. Um, and then once the baby emus do hatch, he has to look after them for about 12 months. Um, and so when you see those emus walking around with the little babies following them, and the babies are all stripy and super cute and They're adorable. The that's the dad. Because the mum, once she's laid her eggs, she she's is out hunting. of there to find the next John. Yeah. Well,
0: I got to say, I got to tell those little baby emus, I know how that feels. Just hope that your emu dad isn't schizophrenic because then you're really f***ed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's
1: a good note to so, end this on. All right, honey, Shall so we that end it was, there? Yes. The Let's Great end it emu on. War, lest we forget. That
0: was, wait, wait, wait. That was Jacob Stanley with the Great Emu War. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jacob. Back to you next week. We'll be back with you just the week. Wait. We'll be, <laughs> wait, just the week. We'll be back with you next week, Just the Gistners, with another episode of Just the Gist.
1: God right. save the queen.
0: <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.
1: <laughs>